3, record suggests that he was an educated man, as already indicated, for the name of his town proved a puzzle till a present-day Dominican missionary Framagoy explained that it appeared to be the combined names for Chinchua in both the common and literary Chinese, in each case with the syllable denoting the town left off. Apparently when questioned from what town he came, Chinka was careful not to repeat the word town, but gave its name only in the literary language, and when that was not understood, he would repeat it in the local dialect. The priest, not understanding the significance of either in that form, wrote down the two together as a single word. Knowledge of the literary Chinese, or Mandarin, as it is generally called, marked the educated man, and, as we have already pointed out, Education in China meant social position. To such minute deductions is it necessary to resort when records are scarce, and to be of value the explanation must be in harmony with the conditions of the period. Subsequent research has verified the foregoing conclusions. Augustin Chinko had also a Chinese godfather and his parents were Chin Company and Zunyo. He was married to Jacinda Raphaela, a Chinese mestiza of the Parian, as soon after his baptism as the bands could be published. She apparently was the daughter of a Christian Chinese and a Chinese mestiza. There were too many of the name Jacinta in that day to identify which of the several Jacintas she was and so enable us to determine the names of her parents. The Raphaela part of her name was probably added after she was grown up. In honor of the patron of the Parian settlement, San Rafael, just as Domingo, at his marriage, added Antonio in honor of the Chinese. How difficult guides' names then were or may be seen from this list of the six children of Augustin Chinko and Jacinda Raphaela, Magdalena Vergara, Josefa, Cristóbal de la Trinidad, Juan Batista, Francisco Hong Sun and Inez de la Rosa, the father-in-law and the son-in-law, Augustin and Domingo, seem to have been old friends, and apparently of the same class. Land Company must have seen his future wife, the youngest in Chinko's numerous family, grow up from babyhood and probably was attracted by the idea that she would make a good housekeeper like her thrifty mother, rather than by any romantic feelings, for sentiment entered very little into matrimony in those days when the parents made the matches, possibly, however, their married life was just as happy, for divorces then were not even thought of, and as this couple prospered they apparently worked well together in a financial way. The next recorded event in the life of Domingo Land Company and his wife occurred in 1741 when, after years of apparently happy existence in Binan, came a great grief in the loss of their baby daughter, Josefa Dignio, probably named for her aunt. She had lived only five days, but payments to the priest for a funeral such as was not given to many grown persons who died that year in Binan show how keenly the parents felt the loss of their little girl. They had at the time but one other child. A boy of ten, Francisco Mercado, whose Christian name was given partly because he had an uncle of the same name, and partly as a tribute of gratitude to the friendly friar scholar in Manila. His new surname suggests that the family possessed the commendable trait of taking pride in its ancestry. Among the Chinese the significance of a name counts for much and it is always safe to seek a reason for the choice of a name. The land company family were not given to the practice of taking the names of their godparents. Mercado recalls both an honest Spanish and commanderal of the region, also named Francisco, and a wordy mestizo friar, now remembered for his botanical studies, but it is not likely that these influenced Domingo Land Company in choosing this name for his son, 
He gave his boy a name which in the careless Castilian of the country was but a Spanish translation of the Chinese name by which his ancestors had been called, Sangli. Mercado and Merchant mean much the same, Francisco therefore set out in life with a surname that would free him from the prejudice that followed those with Chinese names, and yet would remind him of his Chinese ancestry. This was wisdom, for seldom are men who are ashamed of their ancestry any credit to it. The family history has to be gleaned from partially preserved parochial registers of births, marriages and deaths, incomplete court records, the scanty papers of the estates, a few land transfers, and some stray writings that accidentally have been preserved with the latter. The next event in Domingo's life which is revealed by them is a visit to Manila where in the old Parian church he acted as sponsor, or godfather, at the baptism of a countryman, and a new convert seen company whose granddaughter was, we shall see, to marry a grandson of Lancos, the couple becoming Rizal's grandparents. Francisco was a grown man when his mother died and was buried with the elaborate ceremonies which her husband's wealth permitted. There was a coffin, a niche in which to put it, chanting of the service and special prayers. All these involved extra cost and the items noted in the margin of her funeral record make a total which in those days was a considerable sum. Domingo outlived Mrs. Land Company by but a few years, and he also had, for the time, an expensive funeral. Chapter III Liberalizing hereditary influences the hope of the Binan landlords that by changing from Filipino to Chinese tenantry they could avoid further litigation seems to have been disappointed. A family tradition of Francisco Mercado tells of a tedious and costly lawsuit with the order. Its details and merits are no longer remembered, and they are not important. History has recorded enough agrarian trouble, in all ages and in all countries, to prove the economic mistake of large holdings of land by those who do not cultivate it. Human nature is alike the world over. It does not change with the centuries, and just as the Filipinos had done, the Chinese at last obeyed to paying increased rent for improvements which they made themselves. A Spanish huge required the landlords to produce their deeds, and, after measuring the land, he decided that they were then taking rent for considerably more than they had originally bought or had been given. But the tenants lost on the appeal, and, as they thought it was because they were weak and their opponents powerful, a grievance grew up which was still remembered in Rizal's day and was well known and understood by him. Another cause of discontent, which was a liberalizing influence, was making itself felt in the Philippines about the time of Domingo's death. A number of Spaniards had been claiming for their own countrymen such safeguards of personal liberty as were enjoyed by Englishmen, for no other government in Europe then paid any attention to the rights of the individual. Learned men had devoted much study to the laws and rights of nations, but these Spanish liberals insisted that it was the guarantees given to the citizens and not the political independence of the state, that made a country really free. Unfortunately, just as their proposals began to gain followers, Spain became involved in war with England, because the Spanish king, then as now Bourbon and so related to a number of other reactionary rulers, had united in the family compact by which the royal relatives were to stamp out liberal ideas in their own dominions, and as allies to crush England, the source of the dissatisfaction which threatened their thrones. Many progressive Spaniards had become Freemasons, when that ancient society, after its revival in England, had been reintroduced into Spain. Now they found themselves suspected of sympathy with England and therefore of treason to Spain. While this could not be proved, it led to enforcing a papal bull against them. 
by which Pope Clement XII placed their institution under the ban of excommunication. At first it was intended to execute all the Spanish Freemasons, but the Queen's favorite violinist secretly sympathized with them. He used his influence with Her Majesty so well that through her intercession the King commuted the sentences from death to banishment as minor officials in the possessions overseas. Thus Cuba, Mexico, South and Central America, and the Philippines were provided with the ablest Spanish advocates of modern ideas. In no other way could liberalism have been spread so widely or more effectively. Besides these office holders there had been from the earliest days noblemen, temporarily out of favor at court, in banishment in the colonies. Cavita had some of these exiles, who were called Caja Abirna, or Carte Blanche, because their generous allowances, which could be drawn whenever there were government funds, seemed without limit to the Filipinos. The Spanish residents of the Philippines were naturally glad to entertain, supply money to, and otherwise serve these men of noble birth, who might at any time be restored to favor and again be influential, and this gave them additional prestige in the eyes of the Filipinos. One of these exiles, whose descendants yet live in these islands, passed from prisoner in Cavite to Viceroy in Mexico. Francisco Mercado lived near enough to hear of the cages Abiertas, exiles and their ways. If he did not actually meet some of them and personally experience the charm of their courtesy, they were as different from the ruder class of Spaniards who then were coming to the islands as the few banished officials were unlike the general run of office holders. The contrast naturally suggested that the majority of the Spaniards in the Philippines, both in official and in private life, were not creditable representatives of their country. This charge, insisted on with greater vehemence as subsequent events furnished further reasons for doing so, embittered the controversies of the last century of Spanish rule. The very persons who realized that the accusation was true of themselves, were those who most resented it, and the opinion of them which they knew the Filipinos held but dared not voice, rankled in their breasts. They welcomed every disparagement of the Philippines and its people and thus made profitable a senseless and abusive campaign which was carried on by unscrupulous, irresponsible writers of such defective education that vilification was their sole argument. Their charges were easily disproved, but they had enough cunning to invent new charges continually, and prejudice gave ready credence to them. Finally an unreasoning fury broke out and in blind passion innocent persons were struck down, the taste for blood once aroused, Irresponsible writers like that Ritana who has now become Rizal's biographer, whetted the savage appetite for fresh victims. The last fifty years of Spanish rule in the Philippines was a small Saturnalia of revenge with hardly a lucid interval for the governing power to reflect or an opportunity for the reasonable element to intervene. Somewhat similarly the Bourbons in France had hoped to postpone the day of reckoning for their mistakes by misdeeds done in fear to terrorize those who sought reforms. The aristocracy of France paid back tenfold each drop of innocent blood that was shed. But while the unreasoning world recalls the French Revolution with horror, the student of history thinks more of the evils which made it a natural result. Mirabeau in vain sought to restrain his aroused countrymen, just as he had vainly pleaded with the aristocrats to end their excesses. Rissal, who held Mirabeau for his hero among the men of the French Revolution, knew the historical lesson and sought to sound a warning but he was unheeded by the Spaniards and misunderstood by many of his countrymen. At about the time of the arrival of the Spanish political exiles we find in Manila proof of the normal mildness of Spain in the Philippines. The Inquisition, of dread name elsewhere, in the Philippines affected only Europeans, 
had before it two English-speaking persons, an Irish doctor and a county merchant accused of being Freemasons. The kind-hearted friar inquisitor dismissed the culprits with warnings, and accepting some Spanish political matters in which it took part, this was the nearest that the institution ever came to exercising its functions here. The sufferings of the Indians in the Spanish-American gold mines, too, had no Philippine counterpart, for at the instance of the friars the church early forbade the enslaving of the people. Neither friars nor government have any records in the Philippines which warrant belief that they were responsible for the severe punishments of the period from 70 to 298. Both were connected with opposition to reforms which appeared likely to jeopardize their property or to threaten their prerogatives, and in this they were only human. But here their selfish interests and activities seem to cease. For religious reasons the friar orders combated modern ideas which they feared might include atheistical teachings such as had made trouble in France, and the government was against the introduction of latter-day thought of democratic tendency, but in both instances the opposition may well have been believed to be for the best interest of the Philippine people, however mistaken, their action can only be deplored not censured, the black side of this matter was the rousing of popular passion and it was done by sheets subsidized to argue, their editors, however, resorted to abuse in order to conceal the fact that they had not the ability to perform the services for which they were hired, while some individual members of both the religious orders and of the government were influenced by these inflaming attacks. The interests concerned, as organizations, seem to have had a policy of self-defense, and not of revenge. The theory here advanced must wait for the judgment of the reader till the later events have been submitted. However, Rizal himself may be called in to prove that the record and policy is what has been asserted, for otherwise he would hardly have disregarded, as he did, the writings of Molly and Prescott, historians whom he could have quoted with great advantage to support the attacks he would surely have not failed to make had they seemed to him warranted, for he never was wanting in knowledge resourcefulness or courage where his country was concerned. No definite information is available as to what part Francisco Mercado took during the disturbed two years when the English held Manila and Judge and carried on a guerrilla warfare. The Dominicans were active in enlisting their tenants to fight against the invaders, and probably he did his share toward the Spanish defense either with contributions or personal service. The attitude of the region in which he lived strengthens this surmise for only after a long continued wrongs and repeatedly broken promises of redress did Filipino loyalty fail. This was a century too early for the country around Manila, which had been better protected and less abused than the provinces to the north where the Ilocanos revolted. Pinan, however, was within the sphere of English influence, for Andes' campaign was not quite so formidable as the inscription on his monument in Manila represents it to be and he was far indeed from being the great conqueror that the tablet on the Santa Cruz Church describes him, because of its nearness to Manila and Cavite and its rich gardens. British soldiers and sailors often visited Binan, but as the inhabitants never found occasion to abandon their homes, they evidently suffered no serious inconvenience. Commerce, a powerful factor, destroying the hermit character of the islands, gained by the short experience of freer trade under England's rule. Since the Filipinos obtained a taste for articles before unused, which led them to be discontented and insistent, till the Manila market finally came to be better supplied, the contrast of the British judicial system with the Spanish tribunals was also a revelation, for the foulest blot upon the colonial administration of Spain was her iniquitous courts of justice, 
and this was especially true of the Philippines, and his triumphal entry into the capital was celebrated with a wholesale hanging of Chinese, which must have made Francisco Mercado glad that he was now so identified with the country as to escape the prejudice against his race. A few years later came the expulsion of the Jesuit fathers and the confiscation of their property. It certainly weakened the government, personal acquaintance counted largely with the Filipinos, whole parishes knew Spain and the church only through their parish priest, and the parish priest was usually a Jesuit whose courtesy equaled that of the most aristocratic office holder or of any exiled, K.J. Beard. Francisco Mercado did not live in a Jesuit parish but in the neighboring hacienda of St. John the Baptist at Calamba where there was a great dam and an extensive irrigation system which caused the land to rival in fertility the rich soil of Binan. Everybody in his neighborhood knew that the estate had been purchased with money left in Mexico by pious Spaniards who wanted to see Christianity spread in the Philippines, and it seemed to them sacrilege that the government should take such property for its own secular uses. The priests in Binan were Filipinos and were usually leaders among the secular clergy for the parish was desirable beyond most in the archdiocese because of its nearness to Manila, its excellent climate, its well-to-do parishioners and the great variety of its useful and ornamental plants and trees. Many of the fruits and vegetables of Binan were a little known elsewhere, for they were of American origin, brought by Dominicans on the voyages from Spain by way of Mexico. They were introduced first into the great gardens at the Hacienda House which was a comfortable and spacious building adjoining the church, and the favorite resting place for members of the order in Manila. The attendance of the friars on Sundays and fete days gave to the religious services on these occasions a dignity usually belonging to city churches. Sometimes, too, some of the missionaries from China and other Dominican notables would be seen in Binan. So the people not only had more of the luxuries and the pomp of life than most Filipinos, but they had a broader outlook upon it. Their opinion of Spain was formed from acquaintance with many Spaniards and from comparing them with people of other lands who often came to Manila and investigated the region close to it, especially the show spots such as Binan. Then they were on the road to the fashionable baths at Los Banas, where the higher officials often resorted. Such opportunities gave a sort of education, and Binan people were in this way more cultured than the dwellers in remote places whose only knowledge of their sovereign state was derived from a single Spaniard, the friar curate of their parish. Monastic training consists in withdrawing from the world and living isolated under strict rule, and this would scarcely seem to be the best preparation for such responsibility as was placed upon the friars. Troubles were bound to come, and the people of Binan, knowing the ways of the world, would soon be likely to complain and demand the changes which would avoid them. The residents of less worldly wise communities would wait and suffer till too late, and then in blind wrath would wreak bloody vengeance upon guilty and innocent alike. Calamba, a near neighbor of Binan, had other reasons for being known besides its confiscation by the government. It was the scene of an early and especially cruel massacre of Chinese, and about Francisco's time considerable talk had been occasioned because an archbishop had established an uniform scale of charges for the various rites of the church. While these charges were often complained of, it was the poorer people some of whom were in receipt of charity who suffered, the rich were seeking more expensive ceremonies in order to outshine the other well-to-do people of their neighborhood. The real grievance was, however, not the cost, but the fact that political discriminations were made so that those who were out of favor with the government were likewise deprived of church privileges. 
The reform of Archbishop Sander Y. Rufino has importance only because it gave the people of the provinces what Manila had long possessed a knowledge of the rivalry between the secular and the regular clergy. The people had learned in Governor Bustamante's time that church and state did not always agree, and now they saw dissensions within the church. The Spanish conquest and the possession of the Philippines had been made easy by the doctrine of the indivisibility of church and state, by the teaching that the two were one and inseparable. But events were continually demonstrating the falsity of this early teaching. Hence the foundation of the sovereignty of Spain was slowly weakening. And nowhere more surely than in the region near Manila which numbered Jose Rizal's keen-witted and observing great-grandfather among its leading men. Francisco Mercado was a bachelor during the times of these exciting events and therefore more free to visit Manila and Cavite. And he was possibly the more likely to be interested in political matters. He married on May 26. 1771, rather later in life than was customary in Binan, though he was by no means as old as his father, Domingo, was when he married, his bride, Bernarda Monica, was a Chinese mestiza of the neighboring hacienda of San Pedro Tunison, who had been early orphaned and from childhood had lived in Binan, as the coadjutor priest of the parish bore the same name, one in common in the Binan records of that period, it is possible that he was a relative. The frequent occurrence of the name of Monica among the last names of girls of that vicinity later on must be ascribed to Bernarda's popularity as godmother. Mr. and Mrs. Francisco Mercado had two children, both boys, Juan and Clement. During their youth the people of the Philippines were greatly interested in the struggles going on between England, the old enemy of Spain, and the rebellious English-American colonies. So bitter was the Spanish hatred of the nation which had humiliated her repeatedly on both land and sea, that the authorities forgot their customary caution and encouraged the circulation of any story that told in favor of the American colonies. Little did they realize the impression that the statement of grievances so trivial compared with the injustices that were being inflicted upon the Spanish colonials was making upon their subjects overseas, who until then had been carefully guarded from all modern ideas of government. American successes were hailed with enthusiasm in the most remote towns, and from this time may be dated a perceptible increase in Philippine discontent, till then outbreaks and uprisings had been more for revenge than with any well-considered aim, but henceforth complaints became definite, demands were made that to an increasing number of people appeared to be reasonable, and those demands were denied or ignored, or promises were made in answer to them which were never fulfilled. Francisco Mercado was well-to-do, if we may judge from the number of carabados he presented for registration, for his was among the largest herds in the book of brands that has chanced to be preserved with the Binan Church records. In 1783 he was all called a, or chief officer of the town, and he lived till 1801. His name appears so often as godfather in the registers of baptisms and weddings that he must have been a good-natured, liberal and popular man. Mrs. Francisco Mercado survived her husband by a number of years, and helped to nurse through his baby ailments a grandson also named Francisco, the father of Dr. Rizal, Francisco Mercado's eldest son, Juan, built a fine house in the center of Binan, where its pretentious stone foundations yet stand to attest how the home deserved the pride which the family took in it. At twenty-two Juan married a girl of Tubigan, who was two years his elder, Chiril Alejandra daughter of Domingo Lanco's Chinese godson. Seen company Chirila's father's silken garments were preserved by the family until within the memory of persons now living, and it is likely that Jose Rizal, 
Sinko's great-grandson, while in school at Binan, saw these tangible proofs of the social standing in China of this one of his ancestors. Juan Mercado was three times the chief officer of Binan in 1808, 1813 and 1823. His sympathies are evident from the fact that he gave the second name, Fernando, to the son born when the French were trying to get the Filipinos to declare for King Joseph, whom his brother Napoleon had named Sovereign of Spain. During the little while that the Philippines profited by the first constitution of Spain, Mercado was one of the two alcaldes. King Ferdinand VII then was relying on English aid, and to please his allies as well as to secure the loyalty of his subjects, Ferdinand pretended to be a very liberal monarch, swearing to uphold the constitution which the representatives of the people had framed at Cadiz in 1812. Under this constitution the Filipinos were to be represented in the Spanish Cortes, and the grandfather of Rizal was one of the electors to choose the representative. During the next 25 years the history of the connection of the Philippines with Spain is mainly a record of the breaking and renewing of the king's oaths to the constitution, and of the Philippines electing delegates who would find the Cortes dissolved by the time they could get to Madrid, until in the final constitution that did last Philippine representation was left out altogether. Had things been different the sad story of this book might never have been told. For though the misgovernment of the Philippines was originally owing to the disregard for the laws of the Indies and to giving unrestrained power to officials, the effects of these mistakes were not apparent until well into the 19th century. Another influence which educated the Filipino people was at work during this period. They had heard the American Revolution extolled and its course approved, because the Spaniards disliked England. Then came the French Revolution, which appalled the civilized world, a people ignorant and oppressed, washed out in blood the wrongs which they had suffered, but their liberty degenerated into a license, their ideals proved impracticable, and the anarchy of their radical republic was succeeded by the military despotism of Napoleon, a book written in Tagalog by a friar pointed out the differences between true liberty and false, it was the story of an old municipal captain who had traveled and returned to enlighten his friends at home, the story was well told, and the catechism form in which, by his friends' questions and the answers to them, the author's opinions were presented, was familiar to Filipinos, so that there were many intelligent readers, but its results were quite different from what its pious and patriotic author had intended they should be. The book told of the broadening influences of travel and of education, it suggested that liberty was possible only for the intelligent, but that schools, newspapers, Libraries and the means of travel which the American colonists were enjoying were not provided for the Filipinos. They were further told that the Spanish colonies in America were repeating the unhappy experiences of the French Republic, while the English North Americans, whose ships during the American Revolution had found the Pacific a safe refuge from England, had developed considerable commerce with the Philippines. A kindly feeling toward the Americans had been aroused by the praise given to Filipino mechanics who had been trained by an American naval officer to repair his ship when the Spaniards at the government dockyards proved incapable of doing the work. Even the first American consul, whose monument yet remains in the Plaza Cervantes, Manila, though, because of his faith, he could not be buried in the consecrated ground of the Catholic cemeteries, received what would appear to be a higher honor a grave in the principal business plaza of the city. The inferences were irresistible, the way of the French Revolution was repugnant alike to God and government, that of the American was approved by both. Filipinos of reflective turn of mind began to study America, 
Some even had gone there, for, from a little Filipino settlement, St. Malo near New Orleans, sailors enlisted to fight in the Second War of the United States against England, one of them was wounded and his name was long borne on the pension roll of the United States. The danger of the dense ignorance in which their rulers kept the Filipinos showed itself in 1819, when a French ship from India having introduced Asiatic cholera into the islands, the lowest classes of Manila ascribed it to the collections of insects and rectals which a French naturalist, who was a passenger upon the ship, had brought ashore. However the story started, the collection and the dwelling of the naturalist fared badly, and afterwards the mob, excited by its success, made war upon all foreigners. At length the excitement subsided, but too much damage to foreign lives and property had been done to be ignored, and the matter had an ugly look especially as no Spaniard had suffered by this outbreak. The insular government roused itself to punish some of the minor misdoers and made many explanations and apologies, but the aggrieved nations insisted, and obtained as compensation a greater security for foreigners and the removal of many of the restraints upon commerce and travel. Thus the riot proved a substantial step in Philippine progress. Following closely the excitement over the massacre of the foreigners in Manila came the news that Spain had sold Florida to the United States. The circumstances of the sale were hardly creditable to the vendor, for it was under compulsion. Her lax government had permitted its territory to become the refuge of criminals and lawless savages who terrorized the border until in self-defense American soldiers under General Jackson had to do the work that Spain could not do. Then with order restored and the country held by American troops, an offer to purchase was made to Spain who found the liberal purchase money a very welcome addition to her bankrupt treasury. Immediately after this the Monroe Doctrine attracted widespread attention in the Philippines. Its story is part of Spanish history. A group of reactionary sovereigns of Europe, including King Ferdinand, had united to crush out progressive ideas in their kingdoms and to remove the dangerous examples of liberal states from their neighborhoods. One of the effects of this unholy alliance was to nullify all the reforms which Spain had introduced to secure English assistance in her time of need, and the people of England were greatly incensed. Great Britain had borne the brunt of the war against Napoleon because her liberties were jeopardized, but naturally her people could not be expected to undertake food.